Hello and welcome to Contra. My guest is a very close friend of mine, Justin Legere. Justin and I worked together as platoon commanders in the Special Forces, and life has brought both of us to Victoria. He finished his military career as a senior officer in the Royal Canadian Navy and transitioned to civilian work during his MBA at Royal Roads. Currently, he's an executive at Maximus Canada, leading a multidisciplinary team focused on helping the government deliver public services. Justin and I spoke about his experiences as a junior officer in the military at the beginning of the podcast, and I really think this experience would be applicable to anyone who leads or endeavors to lead a team of, say, 40 or less. We also spoke at length about his transition to the civilian workforce and the nuances involved in transitioning to a more senior leadership role. I've always paid really close attention to Justin when he speaks about leadership, and I've benefited greatly in my own professional life because of it. So I'm really excited to be sharing his insights with a broader audience and looking forward to hearing what you think. Hey, Justin, welcome to Contra. Thank you, Greg. Um, So I really wanted to have you on here. I'm glad that you agreed to do it. Um, You're one of the most introspective leaders I know, and you've increasingly become a motivation and inspiration to me as a leader, um, because I, a lot of people that I I know that were leaders in the military and, and civilian life now, so much of their focus is on the actual mechanics of their job, even if it's in management, and less so about coming up with an intent and taking playing that real long game to make sure that everybody on their team and people outside of their team all see that intent and motivating them to actually work towards that intent. We talk about that a lot. People talk about that, but I see you actually doing that. And yeah, it's an inspiration for me. So I'm, I'm really glad that you came on. I really appreciate that, Greg. I wasn't sure if I had anything to add to the conversation on leadership. Um, in the end, I decided that I wanted to do this because though I'm pulling all of my knowledge and my framework for the conversation around leadership from lots of people that are smarter than me, I do have a unique experience um, going from the military into business, and I can relay that experience to other people. And if that's useful, then great. But I claim no mastery of the subject. Yeah, absolutely. And so to get right into it, what would you say has been the biggest change moving from the military to a civilian leadership position? Mm -hmm. I think the biggest change, the biggest struggle that I had was figuring out what my own values are and bringing that into my role as a leader. So just to give some context, in the military, you know, they break you down in basic training and Mm -hmm. they build you back up. And now you're a soldier or a sailor or an airman or whatever. And you adopt the military's specific set of values. Do you feel like you did that? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Um, And I did that at a very young age. I joined the military at 16 years old. Um, And in the end, when I left uh, 16 years later, eight, yeah, 16 years later, uh, it, I wasn't really sure what it was that I valued. And it was a struggle to, to figure that out. Because uh, I think that 
any leader in order to gain the trust of their subordinates needs to be authentic. They need to know who they are. They need to know what they're about, how they're going to lead, how they're going to manage, how they're going to motivate, how they're going to figure out the vision for the team. And you need to know, you need to know what's important to you so that you can have that authenticity, build that trust, and also motivate because people get behind ideas, right? So for me, that was the biggest struggle. Okay. Because it was also a time of transition in my life. Yeah. Right? I'm not a soldier anymore. So what am I? My manager at a medium-sized company that provides government services. Mm-hmm. Is, that, is that what I am now? Yeah. Does that define you? Is that yeah. what you mean? Yeah. Totally. Um, spoiler, no. But I had to sit and think that through. I had to decide. I had to decide what is important to me and how I want to live and treat other people. So that was probably the biggest challenge. And what I ended up deciding was all of that military experience, I don't have to leave that behind. I'm going to leave the military behind, but don't have to leave that that piece of me behind. Right. Got to incorporate it into who I am now, along with my new roles. So what I decided was that I value excellence. I value doing things really well. And I value, to summarize it, love. Treating other people with kindness and compassion. Treating people as people, not as a number or, you know, a means to an end. Um, And I try to express that in my decision-making. I try to express that in my communication. I try to express that in everything that I do, particularly uh, in my position as a leader in, in business, so that my staff know who I am and what our team uh, is expect, how the team is expected to conduct themselves. I think that's been fairly successful, but it was uh, not without its challenges. Yeah, and I mean, <clears throat> that's a that's a great set of ideals. Now, implementing that on the team, of course, you have to have the buy-in of the team, but just as importantly, you have to have the buy-in of your superiors. So, I mean, just to get a, an example, how what's the timeline we're talking about that when you got this job at this civilian company as a management role, how long did it take you to kind of go through this process and establish your values? Um, I had a bit of an advantage in that I was enrolled in my MBA, in an executive MBA program at the time, and was doing a course on leadership and learning about values-based leadership, and realized that I didn't have any, and that this exercise was going to be quite difficult. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I didn't want to... Well, you didn't have any aside from those were that were assigned to you, is that what you mean? Yeah, exactly. I hadn't really figured that out, and I... I think that's fairly common if you look at, uh, you know, prevalent religion in in our society. If you look at the strong rule of law, people don't need to think that hard about who they are and 
how they want to act because we've got some pretty clear rules about how to engage the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. But I think that you've got a responsibility if you're going to take control of other people, uh, if you're going to influence other people through your power, whether that is uh, whatever kind of power that happens to be, and we can talk about that. Um, I think you have a responsibility to, to actually think that through and figure it out and then be consistent. I think that will give you greater success. So do you think taking on that responsibility versus abdicating it, is that the main differentiation be that you see between somebody that's a good leader and somebody who's not? Uh, I think that if you don't have that spark, that no matter how much charisma you have, no matter how much knowledge you have around the subject of leadership or how to influence people, unless you have a, a desire to lead others that, yeah, you won't. Um, I can think back to the very specific moment um, as a, you know, the lowest rung on, on, in the hierarchy of the military where I decided that, hey, I think I should take more responsibility. And for me, it was not out of a desire to control others or to get my way. Um, I have no really strong feelings about things that I want to shape the world a certain way. For me, it was uh, looking at, honestly, incompetent leadership or what I perceive to be incompetent leadership and realizing that I could do better and that because I could, that I should. Mm -hmm. And so I pursued that path in a very deliberate way. But I had a spark. I had a reason. I had a, I had a why. And that has very consistently carried me through my career. Um, I decided to become an officer. Um, so leadership position from, you know, day one, uh, in what your, did you, and what did you do before you were an officer just to give people some background? Yeah. Um, I started out in the Naval Reserve yeah. as a, um, a Naval combat information operator, a radar technician for, to, for clarity. And, uh, yeah, did not was not impressed, let's say, um, with my with the leadership that I that I had, and decided to pursue something wildly different and became an infantry officer, um, and went through that training. Uh, was injured and transferred to logistics in the Navy, which is like the opposite of infantry <laughs> officer. Uh, but having that exposure. Um, I think made me, made me better. It gave me perspective. And the, these, those infantry courses that you took, those were really focused on section level leadership, which to give people some background, the infantry is basically what most people think of in the army. That's like mm -hmm. the foot soldiers of the military, the guys that carry guns and would go in trenches or yeah. kick down doors. Um, and a section is like a 12 man team. So I'm curious to hear about your experience leading a section and seeing other leaders, like budding leaders, lead sections and, and that kind of piece before we move on to the, the larger sure. things. Yeah. Yeah. So it, because it's a training environment, you are, you are subconsciously or consciously critiquing your peers mm -hmm. and seeing what kind of leaders there are out there because the pressure is very high. 
um, you don't want to have to do this training again. It is very unpleasant physically and mentally. Right? <laughs> yes, yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, they call that a, a meat grinder, that uh, phase three infantry course. And you get to know how people react under pressure. And I, I, saw, a, I saw a great value in how people, in how leaders conduct themselves in those situations. So uh, there are people who spin, who when they're put under pressure will be trying to take in way too much data mm -hmm. and not trying to distill it down into something uh, that they can actually deal with. Yeah. Um, and they, they lose sight of the big picture. There are people who get angry because they can't deal with all of the situation that's before mm -hmm. them. And they blame the situation. And they blame the situation and they blame their people. There are people who shut down and good luck trying to get anything out of them. They're, they get into analysis paralysis. Um, and there are people who are very cool and very calm and try to look at the information that is key. Mm -hmm. And the people that can keep a cool head uh, are the ones that are able to identify the information that is most important, and they can deal with the situation. And seeing how subordinates react to that and the different reactions to pressure uh, made it very clear to me what kind of leader I wanted to be, even, even if under the surface I am going crazy, Yeah, that just by forcing myself to be outwardly calm uh, and not allowing myself to get too inside my head that I actually was doing it. Yeah. And I, I kind of like that, that there's that idea of acting. It's like, if you, you know, I, and I think I did that a lot in basic training is you'd see some sergeant or some warrant officer and you just kind of act like them. You mm -hmm. just pretend to be like them under pressure. Even if inside you had too much information, you're overwhelmed, you would just kind of fake it. And then soon enough, you're not really faking it anymore. It's kind of a hybrid of your personality and that person. And then as you're exposed to more leaders and you're, you're taking in say 10, 15 different leaders that you really respect it. Now all of a sudden you're not really, you can't really pinpoint who you're pretending to be anymore. It's just kind of a, this amorphous thing yeah, that well, becomes, it becomes part of you, right? Yeah, exactly. It becomes part of you. Um, and part of the benefit I think of, of that military experience is that you're 20 years old mm -hmm. and now you've been given lawful authority and responsibility. You've been given training under serious pressure to forge you into a competent or at least somewhat competent leader. You've had values that are very effective at uh, bringing up performance from team settings, mm -hmm. uh, and you've brought you've you've integrated them into your persona, into your certainly your leadership persona, um, and you're in a culture that is what I would call a leadership culture, where everyone, regardless of your rank or experience is expected to pay attention, mm -hmm. expected not to put the blinders on, to not pass any faults, and to take responsibility for something. Because as you know, if you ignore that 
thing on the side of the road, well, that could be your end, right? That could be an IED or yeah. something. It's like, you can't ignore that stuff, right? Everyone's yeah. got to pay attention. I used to, when I was in the military, I used to think it was kind of annoying that how much lip service they would pay to leadership because you'd often have a really poor leader constantly prattling on about leadership. But in retrospect, that's actually a good thing. Mm-hmm. Just even though if he's not a good leader, he's aware of the value of leadership because I find in the civilian world, people just aren't even aware. People are certainly aware when there's bad leadership, but they're not as aware of good leadership. I think it's more, and good leadership should be subtle, right? Just like good logistics, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> nobody nobody cheers when they're fed three square meals a day, right? It's true. Yeah. They only notice when something goes wrong, right? Yeah. 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 Um, I, yeah, that's a, I think that's a good observation. You, you do get in a leadership culture like that, you do get exposed to all kinds though, but you've got a framework to discuss it and understand it. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's easy to recognize because I want to say this, even though it's most of the time you're not, you know, out in the field doing the business, but uh, you're still in an environment where there are stakes. Yeah. And lots of things can happen in training um, and people pay attention and they don't, they, they imagine themselves someday, even though 99% of the time you're in training, mm-hmm. you still are judging your leadership against the, okay, what if we're in Afghanistan? Yeah. I mean, especially for us, there was ongoing war while we were on basic training. So everybody's talking about the war. Exactly. And I mean, for most of military history, most of world history, I mean, while the military is training, the military is also going to war somewhere else, mm-hmm. right? It, you know, complete, utter peacetime is pretty rare um, in the military. Uh, I did want to circle back to one thing. You were talking about a couple of the different personality, or a couple of the different reactions mm-hmm. to being overwhelmed with command. And then you talked about how you looked to people you respected and kind of started emulating them, the type, at least you emulated the type of leader that you respected. Mm -hmm. Would that be your advice to somebody that is a new platoon commander on basic training or on an oil rig or on a construction site or any of these kind of section level leadership tasks? Yeah. Uh, Outside of the military context, um, you know, there are there are leadership development programs that uh, companies do. Um, I think, at least from what I've been exposed to, they're very academically based, and they do give you a they do give you a framework. But it's one of those things like I can read every book there is about kite surfing. I can watch all the YouTube videos, yeah. but I cannot kite surf yeah, exactly. until I get out there and start failing at it. Right, mm-hmm. and. I, th- I think leadership is is no different, but I can look at a good leader and emulate them a lot more effectively than I can look at a good kite surfer and emulate them. Uh, so I do think that that is a viable thing to do. I think that helps you actually identify what those values are that you need to yeah. be authentic. Um, we're talking about emulating others, and, and on the other hand, we're saying you need to be authentic. Uh, but I think it's just a matter of integrating those behaviors that you think are good for the team and for the world and for you uh, uh, that you can bring uh, through your your leadership responsibility. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. And then, so can we move, let's move one step beyond that. Your mm-hmm. next experience would have been, I assume, the platoon commander experience, where now this is the first time as an officer you are leading three sections effectively. You basically have three sergeants underneath you. Each one of them is leading a section. So you're really the first job of an officer is actually a leader of leaders. Mm -hmm. I think that is, uh, at least in the military context, um, you're helped by the experience of the leaders under you. Yeah. Um, And, you know, you're taught this in every course as an officer that you pay attention to the non-commissioned ranks, right? For sure. You listen to the troops, and especially those that are in leadership positions. Um, section commander is a command. That's the mm-hmm. only command that a non-commissioned member will ever have. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they've got more experience at it than you do by the yeah. time you're their boss, right? So you've got to pay attention, uh, and you will learn from them what's important to your team. Um, I think uh, if you want to lead other leaders, uh, that's a a bit of a different conversation than in the military context, because I think you're doing more learning. Um, Whereas in the current context for me, um, identifying those people that are, are more suited for senior leadership in the business... Uh, and developing people that are transitioning from a, a technical um, background into more of a leadership role. Uh, they, they are quite different uh, between the military and, and civilian context, sure. because in the military, of course, you're pushed up or you stay where you are. Uh, in the civilian world, I've seen that technically competent people are given more power because they have that that uh, that that technical expertise, that expertise power, let's say. Mm -hmm. And so they're given more natural authority through rank and title. You know, now you're a supervisor of other analysts and now you're a manager of supervisors of analysts and now you're a director um, because you're technically competent at it. You can check their work. I'd say there's less of a focus on the soft skills that are so important uh, to successfully commanding in the military. Um, I think that's probably one of the biggest weaknesses uh, on the civilian side of things and not having what I would call a leadership culture. Yeah, and I've heard this idea. I think it's a Japanese idea in when they look at the West. It's that people are promoted to their place of incompetence. Yes. It's like, you know, if you're a good mechanic, you're promoted to floor supervisor. If you're a great floor supervisor, you're promoted to, you know, district manager. <clears throat> and if you're an awful district manager, you're kept there. Yeah. It's like, well, <laughs> why not just keep that guy at what he's really great at or train him rather than just have your ranks all filled out by people that, you know, continued to rise up until they were awful at their job. Um, well, we tend to incentivize people taking more responsibility. For, mm-hmm. for others uh, with bigger pay and offices and titles and everything. Um, there's not everybody should be pursuing that path. For sure. And I think that's where we get in a little bit of trouble where people that have no business leading others can find themselves in those roles. Hmm. So I, I think we, we kind of alluded to this earlier, but... What type of personality would you, and and not saying to a leader, like, don't promote this person, but talking to the person themselves, 
how would you address somebody that, or how would you define somebody that says, like, listen, you should pursue a technical role, think about yourself and in, in not in a leadership function or change your personality? Like, I'm trying to, I guess I'm trying to get out of you. What, what personality traits make it very difficult to lead? Like I said before, I think it's people who don't actually want to lead. They mm-hmm. might want all the other trappings that come with the I role, yeah. but they don't actually want to lead anybody. See, I have a very clear purpose. Mm-hmm. I have a very clear desire, and I have intent. I have vision for my team, and I share that with them. Um, mm. And some people don't. Some people just want the role. They just want the pay. Um, they don't really want the responsibility. Yeah. Um, and for lots of different reasons, because, you know, they they don't believe in themselves, um, because they just are lazy. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, the, the archetype of that that immediately comes to mind for me is kind of like the ass kissing middle manager. Mm-hmm. That he's not talking to his subordinate, he's not inspiring them, he's not trying to figure out what their problems are and remove those problems. He's always, you know, hanging out with the big guys and trying to weasel his way into places where he doesn't really belong or, you know, get coffees for people and just buy his way into higher circles of power. He's not he's not really interested in being a leader, like you said. He's interested in the trappings that come with it. Mm-hmm. And I do think there is likely, well, there's definitely a decent-sized uh, group of people that just want power for power's sake. Um, you know, I've seen these you know, inspirational leadership talkers or whatever. They say, uh, leadership isn't about power. Yeah, yeah, it is. I think. Yeah. I think it is based on power. Now, how you use that power and what kind of power that you have tells me what kind of leader you are. So there are a bunch of different kinds of power. Um there's uh, power that comes from your your rank or, or title, right? It, and that's, I think we call that a legitimate power. Like it's the natural authority that comes with being called a supervisor. Mm-hmm. We all just know that that means you're supervising other people. Yeah. And so we should listen to you because you're my supervisor for no other reason than that. Mm-hmm. That doesn't really stand up to high-pressure situations, right? Right. Um, One example I can think of, I don't remember who told me this, probably some crusty old sergeant one time, uh, said, okay, you've got all the legal power there is. It's from the Queen of Canada, Elizabeth II. She says, you have the legal authority to command my troops on my behalf under punishment under the National Defense Act, should they fail to obey your commands. But you're out in a field. It's wood line. Shot comes from the wood line. You guys all get down in the grass. No idea where on that line that that bullet came from. Mm -hmm. So now you're telling one of your section members to get up, take a few paces, and get down to try to draw fire so you can watch where that bullet comes from, where that shot came from. Do you think that a piece of paper is going to compel that person to 
put their life at serious jeopardy? Certainly not. Yeah. Certainly not. Now, at that point, you better hope that you have an integrated team that cares about each other because that soldier will do it for his buddies or her buddies. They're probably not going to do it for you, but yeah, it's it, not about you. And that yeah. is that is probably one of the biggest things that I see in business and leaders is that f- for them, it's about them. Mm. But it can't be. It's got to be about your team because it's not you that's going to realize your vision. It's not you that's going to execute your intent. It's your team. Yeah. So, and in this con, in this example, the soldier has to believe that you have a plan to get them out of there safely, or at least as safely as possible, and accomplish your mission. And he believes in you that this is part of the plan, and this is the only way we can do this plan, and that's why he's going to do it. Yeah. And there might be other ways to do that. I'm not sure. Yeah. Well, you could do it the Russian way. You could just take, get up or I'm going to shoot you in the back. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't, yeah. I don't know. Um, but then you have to have a lot of other people behind those people with pistols, like all yeah. threatening. And that's why the Russian army tends to roll out in tens of thousands, right? Well, that, that's, a, that's another kind of power. That's coercive power. Mm-hmm. That is power of punishment or, you know, I'm going to dock your pay. I'm going to give you a fine. I'm going to confine you to barracks. Um, that's another kind of power and that only goes so far, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think, uh, the, uh, the other side of that is the power of reward, right? I can give you incentives. I can incentivize you or I could coerce you. It's two sides of the same coin. Um, another kind of power that we see, uh, and I'm sure you can imagine some examples of this in your life where, there are people who hoard information. Think that makes them powerful. Mm. Um, that is a that is a kind of information of a kind of power is ho- holding on to information, and that's different from expertise. Yeah, you know? um, expertise is is a certain kind of power that you see in any hierarchy of competence, right? And that is probably, like I said, one of the more prevalent types of power in business is that expertise power. That's, I trust that you know what you're doing, right? Um, but the soft power, which is to me the most compelling, is power of belief. It's the power of believing, like you said, that you've got a plan, but also in why you're doing something. Mm -hmm. And that ties back to the values-based leadership that we we believe in doing this certain thing a certain way. It's called referent power. And people, I'm sure you can think of examples where you've done something for somebody just because it was that person who was asking. No questions. Yep. You know, do anything for that guy. Right? Mm-hmm. And why do you think that is? Why do I think that is? I think I think that's because they have shared values and and you align yourself with those. Mm. And you you choose to align yourself with those because you respect that in them. And yeah. you want to be you want to 
share that and you want to consider yourself somebody that has those values. Yeah. And Rather you, than just cozying yourself up to the person, you're cozying yourself up to the idea or those shared group of ideas. Exactly. So think about what it takes to effectively communicate that to your, to your subordinates and to the people around you. It takes a lot. You've got to have a very clear vision. Mm-hmm. You've got to be able to communicate really well. Those people have to trust you. So, you know, there's like 20 or 30 different things you could do to be a good leader, but you only have to be bad at one of them to fail. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's the trick. So to me, it's less about striving for perfection and more about mitigating where I'm weak. Okay. So let's, in the context of this kind of platoon level leadership, or a good example could be, say, an engineer who is put onto a construction site. And I know this happens. They come ready to school, and now all of a sudden they're supervising 20, 30 construction workers, and they have a couple foremans, and they have no experience aside from, you know, a bunch of math and calculus and, you know, dynamics and these courses you take in school that or people that work in the oil rigs there's i mean even in the healthcare world you're you're given a bunch of people if you just have a certain amount of education what are some of the common pitfalls that you're referring to that these people could fall into that would destroy their credibility as a leader and destroy their their ability to kind of project into the future and get people to to follow them and mm-hmm. uh, realize their intent that engineer has amazing expertise that his subordinates may never have or could ever hope to have, right? It's okay. hard. It's hard, right? Yeah. It's hard to become an engineer. Um, but that does not give you that expertise power that's relevant for the people he's leading necessarily. Mm-hmm. So for any leader starting out, they have to learn first. They have to listen they have to understand what is important in the real world and what affects the, his subordinates. Yeah. Okay. Um, the, the biggest pitfall would be thinking that you know it all because you really don't know much of anything that's relevant to your subordinates. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know engineer stuff. Yeah. You don't know subordinate stuff. Yeah. And I think so often leadership is conflated with management and the actual functions because that engineer, he's not just a leader. He's also has management roles. He probably has to submit drawings and plans. There's a bunch of stuff that he has to do as work as well as the leadership. And I think one thing, especially I saw this in the military quite often in the logistics and support units is that people would get so hyper-focused on the technical aspects of their job. They would use that as an excuse to not be a leader. To neglect their subordinates. Totally, and abdicate all their leadership responsibilities. And I saw that at every level of command. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you, you at different levels of leadership, you get pulled in a direction. You get pulled up and out, in, or you could get pulled down and in. And Can you explain those terms? Yeah, so up and out would be you're dealing more with your peers, understanding the you know the battlefield understanding the the larger situation uh, feeding feeding the beast as I like to say giving information up to mm-hmm. your to your uh, superiors um, and it's the same thing in business you've got to feed corporate you've got to make sure the boss is up on the latest KPIs you know 
Um, it's the same thing. Um, at the same time, there's execution happening underneath you. And you do have to keep tabs on that. And I would say the, the closer to the action that you get, the further down the hierarchy you get, the more important it is that you are paying attention to the down and in. Yeah. So that platoon commander level, you are responsible primarily, obviously, for the, the discipline and the training and the effectiveness of the people underneath you. But you're also responsible for understanding uh, the larger situation above you and translating translating what's going on above you into tasks for the people underneath you. Mm-hmm. That's what I see as a huge gap uh, in, in business at all levels is the concept of turning strategic intent into tactical action. Mm-hmm. It's a huge gap. People have a hard time taking an idea and turning it into specific, measurable, achievable, relevant, time-bound tasks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, in some ways, the the military has an advantage in that there's it, the mission is more concrete in that you either win or you don't often. You, you are given a mission from higher, and then you can either succeed or not succeed in that. Where in business, it's like how much, it's not just you're out of business or you're in business, it's more abstract. Now, that actually, sometimes in the military, that's a disadvantage for budgeting, right? Because how much money can you pour into something to get a certain amount of effect. It's it's very difficult. Budgets run out of control, whereas in the civilian world, it's very easy. We just have to be profitable, right? So it it's a lot easier, I think, to assign budgets, but assigning timelines to things, and that's something I've found working in the civilian world. It's very difficult to say, okay, we've got this idea. How long do we take to design it? How long do we take to um, come up with, you know, a mass production plan? Like, when does it actually have to hit the shelves? Whereas in the military, it's like, okay, the commander says he wants us ready for this mission on October 2nd. So we're not going to debate that. We're just going to be ready. We're either ready or we're not. And those things are more clearly defined. Yeah, the, the concept of, of readiness and, and what it takes to get you to become, let's say, fighting fit, get your team in a state that they could effectively execute a, a, a mission, um, it's certainly not easy, but I do think there is a, a bit more simplicity to it mm-hmm. because depending on the risk involved, depending on the importance of the mission, uh, factors like money start to become less important, right? Efficiency yeah. isn't necessarily relevant. Um, you know, any project you've got quality money and time that you have to try to balance, uh, well, you can really start to to weigh things heavily on the quality or the time uh, side of the spectrum in the military. You can't really do that so much in business. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got you've got different kinds of pressures, right? For sure. You've got com- your competition, right? You've got the maturity of of your practice and your discipline, right? So. Um, answering the questions that you just posed, 
about um, how long does it take to get to market? Uh, well, if you've got a mature practice and a disciplined approach, you should be able to answer that question. Um, I, yeah, it it's quite different. Uh, it's quite different. But bringing it back to to the leadership question, um, it's that's more of a that's more management. I would say than than leadership. To me, leadership is about influencing people toward an end, uh, and the way you do it and what you prioritize, um, uh, or or rather the practice you undertake to achieve those things is is more of a management skill set. I've met wonderful managers that are terrible leaders, and I've met great leaders that are terrible managers, people, leaders that can paint you a picture as clear as, as, you know, as clear as a photograph of what the end state's going to look like, of who we're going to be when we grow up, uh, and have absolutely no idea how to execute that. Right. Right. And is that kind of what you were talking about as far as taking that strategic vision and breaking it down into executable tasks with a finite time span? Well, all of these things are a team sport. Mm -hmm. So hopefully you've paired yourself. If you're that guy or that that gal, you have paired yourself with an execution expert. Mm -hmm. That understanding your strengths and weaknesses uh, is a key part of of being a leader. Um, There are 10 principles of leadership that they teach in the military. I don't know if you remember them. <laughs> yeah, more or less, I think. Yeah. yeah they're Hillier's, uh, yeah, Hillier's principles. I'm not sure if, I'm not sure what the, you know, doctrinal genesis of these principles are, but I've kept them and I've, I've adapted them and I share them with every person that comes into my office expressing any interest in leadership opportunity. Um, you want to go through them real quick? No, not really. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah, let's go for it, man. Yeah, yeah. All right, all right. Uh, yeah, we, and yeah, we can touch on touch on them. The fact that they've stayed with me for you know fifteen years so far, and I anticipate I'll use them for the rest of my life. I think speaks to the usefulness of them. Yeah, I think about them often too. I have a three or four that I I kind of constantly go back to, and. I want to. I want you, as we go through them, to think about which one is the most important. It's a hard question. Okay. But I think it will answer a question about what kind of leader you are. Okay, let's do All it. Right? Uh, so achieve professional competence. It's number one. I think that just speaks to that expertise, power, and the ability to build trust with the people that work for you, that you have some basic competence in the work that you're doing mm-hmm. right um, yeah nobody wants to work for a leader that sucks at his job even yeah. if he's a good leader yeah even if they were yeah it's not respectable exactly uh, appreciate your own strengths and limitations and pursue self-improvement just gave an example of that right yeah you've you've got to understand you've got to understand uh, your boundaries and how to push them and work towards that Seek and accept responsibility. We spoke about that earlier. Mm-hmm. Don't put the blinders on. Never pass a fault. 
lead by example. That one gets thrown around a lot. Mm -hmm. I think it's fairly self-evident that you should conduct yourself in a way that you want people to emulate. And you should not conduct yourself in a way you don't want people to emulate. Make sure that your followers know your meaning and intent, then lead them to the accomplishment of the task. That one is about being able to paint the picture, be able to communicate the vision. Know your people and promote their welfare. You know, to me, that one is also self-evident at this point, but if I look around, it's not necessarily self-evident to many. Mm-hmm. Um, no leader does anything. They're not a leader without subordinates, right? Yeah. So they, they can't accomplish anything without them. Um, if you don't know the strengths and limitations of the people who work for you, you won't be able to make them better mm-hmm. or help them become better, I should say. Develop the leadership potential of your people. I think that goes towards building a, a leadership culture, right? Yeah. And helping to... to. So here's one thing I've seen, is that leaders aren't necessarily the people with the title. They're not necessarily the people... Um, with the responsibility. At a very basic level, they're the people that others trust and turn to when things go wrong. Yeah. I think uh, Simon Sinek had some stories around that. Basically, you know, Simon Sinek? Simon that. Sinek is, uh, he's a thought leader, let's say, on leadership. He's written some books. Um, one's called... Uh, leaders eat last. He spent a lot of time with the military and looking at military leadership and kind of proselytizing that, that way, uh, to civilians, to the business world. Um, yeah. Sorry, I I took you off course there. No, it's all good. Yeah. Um, I'm going to jump right back into the list here. Mm -hmm. Uh, make sound and timely decisions. So if you think back to the you know, the persona that, or the person that uh, gets stuck in analysis paralysis that lets themselves become overcome by events. Yeah. Like that old thing they say in the military a lot, a non-decision is a decision. Exactly. If you're so overwhelmed by the pressure that you refuse to make a decision, you're actually making a very quick and definite decision. It's a decision to do nothing. Mm -hmm. And often, whether you're in logistics um, or in combat, if you do nothing, it's worse than doing the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. Like at least if you do it, like launch an ineffective plan to supply the troops, that's better than no plan to supply the troops, right? Yeah. Yeah. Now it, it requires an ability to uh, quickly process information, manage risk, understand risk, um, maybe have a, a framework for working through risk. Uh, it's, and then being able to commit to a decision. Mm-hmm. And the the thing that I always find interesting about, about this concept is where to draw the line between making a decision and sticking with it and pivoting because you've got new information. Yeah. Because sometimes you got to stay the course and sometimes you got to turn the ship yeah. and 
it is, it's impossible for me to tell you in a consistent way how to do that. Yeah. That's where I think it comes down to uh, experience and belief in yourself. People, uh, that phrase, I never really understood what that meant to believe in yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, you tell your kids that, like, believe in yourself, guys. What does that even mean? It means that you, I think it means that you genuinely think that you are capable of dealing with whatever the situation is. Mm -hmm. And whatever it may change into. Exactly. So good question to ask yourself. Have you ever come across a situation that you just could not handle ever in your life that you just, you could not handle? Yeah, for sure. What did you do? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm well, trying you're, to Well, you're sitting here. Yeah. So you did something. You, <laughs> yeah. you handled it in some way. I didn't just commit seppuku. No, <laughs> exactly. You've, you've made it here. You made it this far. Yeah. You know, you did, you did something. Maybe that was deciding to do nothing, but you mm -hmm. didn't just collapse in this chair in front of me magically. That's right? true. Yeah. So you're very capable of handling whatever gets thrown at you. Yeah, that's true. And some people bite off more than they can chew, mm -hmm. but that was a decision too. Yeah. Right? But I think for the most part, People know where their boundaries are and how much to push. You know, you can uh, you can do it. You can deal with it. You know, and uh, one cool thing about the military is that they're always throwing stuff at you that you definitely are not equipped to deal with, and yet you somehow do because yeah. you're not alone most of the time, right? You've got a team. You got people with experience kind of cool though when those people with experience that have had other commanders other platoon commanders still look at you and they know you've not dealt with this before but they fully believe that you can mm -hmm. i think uh i've had a couple like i can count them on one hand situations where that has happened and those are definitely the most proud moments for me professionally is where I had the confidence of people who've been here before and yet are still deferent to me. Yeah. Can you recount one of these experiences? Does one come to mind? Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, tough situation. Toward the, the end of, um, toward the end of my time in the military, uh, had a had a troop uh, was was killed on the job. It wasn't combat related. It was an industrial accident. Um, and I was the executive officer of the unit, so I was the I was the down and in. I was responsible for running the the day to day of the unit. Yeah, you were basically the second in charge mm -hmm. of the unit, which is three or four hundred people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, three hundred and twenty-seven at the time. Okay. And when you see people who 
are super competent, have been doing this for 30 years, turn and look at you and you're giving them some comfort because you've got this. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of things that need to happen when, when a person in the military is killed. A lot of administration, a lot of interactions with a bunch of different agencies within the military, uh, with the family. Internally, uh, you've got to look after the, the morale and welfare of, of that team mm -hmm. and the larger unit. And you've got to be as steady as possible. You've got to stay cool. And in that situation, um, I was up to the task. And I thought I was going to kick my feet up in my last two weeks in the military. Oh, yeah, that was your <laughs> yeah. last two weeks, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, it was. Um, but no, instead, uh, we had to we had to get the unit through that, and it was a it was a tough time. Um, but I definitely felt like I had earned my place when that situation came to pass, and I was able to deliver. Yeah, I've had people. Um, well, two people in particular that reached out after that incident uh, because it it affected lots of people because you, they all got involved in different ways and uh, and thanked me for staying cool in mm -hmm. that situation and guiding the process, you know? Yeah, and it's interesting. That's like a, a different type of... Uh cool-headedness one would think it's a lot different than combat but it's just as valuable to have that cool-headedness in that situation as it is in combat because like you said there's a bunch of tasks that have to be done somebody has to do them and nobody really knows what to do because they're all of seemingly equal importance but somebody needs to kind of figure out what they all are and start partitioning them off right mm-hmm yeah, combat's a whole other thing. Mm -hmm. uh, when your own life is at risk, it brings out a lot of different emotions. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> yeah. And I don't think anybody really knows what they're going to do in that situation until they're in that situation. And we've, like, we've seen people, they get, you know, I don't know how much training costs. I would say to get like a fully competent infantry officer like they're spending hundreds of thousands if not over seven figures on that person and they they're going to feel lots of social pressure they're going to feel the burden of command they're going to have lots of tools to help them get over the hump mm -hmm. but they're also fighting a very strong urge to crawl under their bed and ask for their mom okay <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> especially because when they're thrown into combat, they might be 24. Exactly. Or younger, in the American yeah. case, right? Absolutely. Um, a friend of mine at the service battalion, he was in Afghanistan on his like six-month tour, and he encountered an American officer there that was, I think he was 20, I think he was 24, and he'd been in Afghanistan for two and a half years just because he kept re-upping and kept getting moved to other, like he, he kind of, he wanted to be there. But this guy had basically done university and done hard army training through his university summers and then just 
lived his entire adult life in war. I can't see how that could be healthy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 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 That's a whole other topic of discussion. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. We don't need to go down that one. Um, We were talking about the 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 10 principles of leadership. So we're on number nine. Okay. Um, Train and develop your people as a team and employ them up to their capabilities. I don't think people have thought that hard about what that means to be a team. Okay. I have a hard time articulating it myself because what, you know, there's some very obvious things like you're working toward a common goal. Okay. You're supporting each other. Okay. You're offsetting each other's strengths and weaknesses. That's fairly clear. But there's something else there that comes from the leader that either is omitted or ignored, uh, and that is instilling their values, going back to the beginning of this conversation, into that team, and getting everybody else on board. I actually had this conversation with my direct subordinates uh, earlier this week. They said, you know, it's coming up to the end of the year. They said, Do you have any feedback from other people that you want to share? My approach to performance management is to give immediate feedback, good Mm -hmm. or bad. I don't allow any ego in my office. Okay. Whether it's from me or anybody else. And I don't allow ego within the team. I don't, ego is a barrier. Ego is a story that you tell yourself about who you are and that you try to project to other people. I don't have time for that. I need you, authentic. Right. I want the actual you and what you're able to deliver. So we don't allow ego. So immediate feedback, good or bad, it's usually good. So build good teams. But they ask for feedback from other people. And I said, I, I do, I get feedback. But the only thing you should be concerned with, and here I brought a little ego into it, but you'll see maybe not really, is what I think. Because I trust you. That's all you need to be worried about. I trust you. You trust me. You trust the people on either side of you in your team. So we have a pretty tight leadership team. Very open. And... I don't want to bring outside words into it because those words can, those words can hurt the ego, right? It's not necessarily coming from a place of, uh, of love and trust. I'm not sure what you mean, outside words. From people outside of the team. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. That doesn't mean they're not valid. doesn't mean that the message they're trying to convey isn't valid. And I make sure to work that into my feedback for them, right? Yeah. But and I'm so not, this, this, this feedback you're talking about, is this one-on-one with each of your subordinates or is this together as a team you guys together. are talking? Yeah. yeah. Okay, and it's a, like, it's a small team, right? We've got a, we've got a decent sized division, um, but I've got three main leaders that work for me, senior managers, um, and we meet, we meet weekly and we have it all out. Yeah. It's all open. No ego. If I've got harsh, not harsh, hard feedback 
I do that in front of everybody so that they can learn. Mm -hmm. And I'm not shy about getting feedback from them either. Mm -hmm. And they do provide it. (laughs) Sometimes it is hard. (laughs) But... We all based on your physical attributes. I all assume. my physical attributes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Mostly to do with uh, the fact that I'm a ginger. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I really wish they would give up on that one. But. I know, I know. Oh, I should just dye my hair. Um, I'd have to dye my eyebrows too. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, it, it's, we're able to do that because we've got trust with each other. And, and we know that it's coming from from a, you know, I keep saying love, but that's the simplest way to express it. It's coming from a place of love and from a place of wanting to make the team better and make each other better. Mm -hmm. Um, To me, people that are aligned in values, people that are aligned in execution, um, that is a team beyond the other basics. Yeah. You know, this situation sounds great, but somebody who wanted to recreate that, that was listening to this right now, they can't just snap their fingers and create that environment. So how did you cultivate that with these three employees? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I took over I took over a team and I set the conditions uh, very quickly in our first meeting. Okay. Actually, the first thing I said, and I've done this before in other teams, is that we will we will meet regularly. We will try to meet every week. And you will all leave your egos at the door. I have no time for it. The team has no time for it. And I promise I've got the biggest ego here, and it's not in the room. Yeah. So immediately establishing those boundaries. Um, yeah. A couple people... Uh, we started out with a, a bigger team. They're not here. You know, I have I have the ability to cultivate the team, to make it, to optimize it, let's mm-hmm. say. Uh, and not everybody fit in with the culture I was trying to create. Not everybody fit it, aligned with my values. Yeah. But I know that those values, I believe in that. I've got that little spark that says, I know this is best for the business. I know this is best for the people in the team. I know they're best for all the people on the floor doing all the work. Yeah. Um, so I don't, I don't think it's something you can just snap your fingers. It takes time mm-hmm. and you've got to, you've got to try to, you've got to find ways to bring, uh, those values to work. You got to bring, you got to find ways to bring those people in line with them. Well, and I think too, if I'm if I'm imagining right, you have to build trust because when you, and it has to be consistent because it's a lot easier to smash something than to, it is to build it. It takes very little uh, experience to destroy a car, but it takes a lot to put it back together. Um, so if you're in one of those meetings and you have this big spiel about no ego, and the first time somebody gives you some criticism, you blow up, well, oh, yeah. good luck. Yeah. Good yeah. luck with that approach. Well, it's, that's because it's not authentic. Yeah. If it's if it's authentic, like this is just me, yeah. I'm not saying to do it this way. Mm-hmm. I find it effective. I've got pretty high trust within the team. It's not perfect, and man, I don't even know. I think I'm okay. I don't know. I know a lot about leadership. 
but I'm not making any claims in terms of being an expert at it or in the execution of it. Mm-hmm. Man, I got gaps. I know that. Um, that's uh, that's principle two. <laughs> yeah. Appreciate your own strengths and limitations. Pursue self-improvement. Um, but I've got a framework to at least talk about it, right? Mm-hmm. And not everybody is going to have the same level of conscientiousness. Um, and they're all going to have a different approach. They're all going to have different values. Um, mine work for me. And I think they're, they work for the team. We've had pretty good outcomes over the past few years. Uh, and we did have to break the old way of doing things. That did require, that did require a hammer. Yeah. Because uh, we were going to build something new. And my experience with managing change with people is it's not adopting something new that's hard. It's letting go of the old way. Mm-hmm. And particularly for middle managers who have been successful doing things the old way. It's very, very hard for them. Yeah. Um, and I think it's interesting too, they talk about this in the military, but not so much in the civilian world, you know, having your values and your intent, people actually don't need to agree with it. You don't need to convince people it's necessarily the right way. You just have to have them trust that you're going to be consistent so that if they work towards that, they're going to be rewarded and the team will move towards that. Yeah, there's no... It's not a utopia or telling people how to live their life or to adopt my values if you want to work for me. That's not what, I, that's not what I'm trying to achieve. Yeah. It's trying to achieve a certain level of authenticity and trust and uh, effectiveness working as a team. Because teams that are aligned and share values are more effective. Mm-hmm. That has been my experience. And I would be very surprised to see any evidence that goes against that. Now, that's not to say you can't have diversity. I think diversity along any spectrum can make a team much stronger. Um, and I, ha- I have found that. Uh, but in terms of, of the way we're going to work together, you do need some alignment. For sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you first brought up these 10 principles, you, you referenced that there was one um, in particular that was of that most importance or um, can you elaborate more on that? We've got one more principle to touch on first. Oh, I forgot. <laughs> yeah, the anticipation's <laughs> killing you, Justin. The anticipation. Well, we're going to talk about yours first, Greg. Uh, keep your people informed of the task, the changing situation, and the overall picture. People don't hoard information. Don't become somebody that wields power through information. Um, it, it bothers people. Mm-hmm. It's very disengaging, very disengaging to not know what's going on or if there's a plan. Um, yeah, it's disrespectful to your followers not to trust them with what's going on mm-hmm. or to just give them enough so that they stay in a little box and can do whatever menial thing you want them to do. Yeah. You know? Um, yeah, it's dehumanizing, isn't it? It's very dehumanizing. And how are they? How are you supposed to? How are you supposed to promote their welfare? How are you supposed to develop their potential as leaders if you keep them in a little box? Yeah, and it's kind of like goes back to that intent-based leadership. If 
to kind of really simplify things, as far as I understand it, if you need to gather 100 pounds of weight to, um, let's just say, hold down a tarp or you know some obscure thing, hold down a vehicle um, in a storm. So what you're going to say to your people is go fill 100 uh, one-liter buckets and bring them back. Now, you might have a plan for that, but if you say, I'm trying to gather up 100 pounds worth of weight, now let's go do it this way. If you've cultivated that trust with your subordinates, one guy can say, well, actually, sir, you know, we've got this 100-pound, you know, crushed car. Let's just grab that. And you can say, okay, let's do that. Forget all that stuff. Whereas if you keep them blind of information and you say, fill these 100 buckets, your guys will be wasting time doing that instead of using that piece of scrap that would fit that task perfectly. And if the situation changes, and then they're just not prepared to react to that change because now you'd have to read them into the entire situation. So it, it makes things a lot less flexible. And that's where the military has gone with, uh, what are they, what's the word they use for that? When the command is delegated down to the, like, um, the ability to change is delegated to the lowest level. Um, I'm not sure. Anyway, it's not, not important, but... It's it's very clear in the military context why this is important, because if you as the leader get shot in the face in the middle of the battle, <laughs> you better hope that somebody in your underneath you knows what the next step is and knows the whole point of what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but to to put it in a, a more conventional context, um, it's been my experience that planning or rather plans uh, are immediately overcome by events yeah and the process of planning is where the real value is the mm-hmm. process of getting people thinking about what is the desired end state what is it that we're trying to end up with what does right look like and then uh, working through different approaches and coming up with an optimal one well there's going to be a different there's going to be different factors that you didn't account for or the situation is going to change but as long as everybody understands what the end state is and has done some thinking around it and you've clearly communicated what it is you're trying to achieve then yeah they can they can pivot so whether you're writing code for software or you're building a robot if people understand the end state and your intention of how to get there they can actually react to changes live rather than you having to redo the entire plan and then tell them their little piece of it. Exactly. You've yeah. got you've got uh, thinking cogs, right? Yeah. We're all just cogs, but mm-hmm. now you've got thinking cogs, which is pretty pretty invaluable. Absolutely. So we got through the ten. Does it do any jump out for you, Greg? Um. Well, I mean, we already talked a lot about the the one on intent. I feel like um, a lot of them, I mean, they're all important for sure. And they're, they're all things that I, you know, from the very beginning of my military career, we were made to remem- memorize them and, you know, yell them out while we're doing push-ups, which I actually think is a really stupid way to, <laughs> to teach them. It, you kind of you lose the point of it when you're taught like that. But later when I actually sat down and thought about them, I've... I've yeah, they're all very important to me. Um, I think the most important one to me has always been about intent. And 
getting into a situation when I got a new job in the military and likewise here, um, or likewise in the civilian world, my first few months, I really just focus on the technical aspects of the job and getting to know the people that are working with me or beneath me and trying to figure out where the organization needs to go. And then after that two or three months, when I have a good idea, I start talking about that and just getting the feel from everybody. Is this something that actually makes sense or is it there a, has this been something tried a hundred times before? Because, you know, I'm not a unique not that unique of a person. I'm not as unique as I think. So if I have some great idea, maybe it's been thought of before. So even if I want to pursue that like a dog, at least I should be aware of the pitfalls where it's failed before that idea. So then I start talking about that, getting people online and making adjustments. And then the next six months, I start realizing that getting um, people to buy into that, getting resources, um, whether you have to build new teams to accomplish that. That's kind of how I look at that. And that's all based on intent. And those other aspects just help you realize that and motivate your subordinates. But at the end of the day, um, leadership is kind of, in my mind, it's the, it's the most respectable way to manipulate people. Like other <laughs> ways of manipulating people are looked yes. down upon, but leadership is generally not. However, that's really what it is. It's just, it's manipulation. Yeah, but... But it's a way that people want to be manipulated. Yeah. Like, I I want to be manipulated. I want to be manipulated by a good leader, right? I want to come into work and have a clear purpose and understand this is why I'm doing this. If I do an extra hour at work today, I don't want it just to just be like, I have to do this because my boss told me to. I want to know why I'm doing it and feel that I'm part of the team and I'm even if I don't believe in his intent, even if I don't want to build the next electric car and I think they're stupid, but if I understand why I'm doing it and that it's it's achieving that goal, it's it's more meaningful. So so that's the most important one to me. The other one that really jumps out at me is the seek and accept responsibility. Um, now, in the military, I actually went out of my way to avoid any extra responsibility. And I think that's because I felt that the command of soldiers at that young age was such, I took that so seriously that when they were like looking for silly things like who's going to be the, um, the planner for the, you know, intramural hockey, I, I would never, I would always try to avoid those things. Who's going to be the like planner of the, you know, the regimental ball. I would always avoid those things because I thought they were completely superfluous to like the heavy responsibility that was upon me. But now in the civilian world, what I've seen and what I've dealt with is there was a lot of things that people just don't want to deal with, but they're getting in the way of the objective and they're getting in the way of people enjoying themselves at work, but nobody wants to pick it up. So it's not even so much you seek responsibility, it's just you see something that has to be done and you kind of just begrudgingly take responsibility for it because nobody else will do it. And you're like, all right, if I'm going to make things better around here, this has to be done and I just have to do it. So yeah. that's one that jumps out at me. Yeah. Yeah. That was definitely the one I was going to say, Greg. So thank you for that. <laughs> um, I mean, anyone could pick any of these and for they're sure. going to be valid and, you know, you're going to focus on whichever is most applicable in the situation um, that you find yourself in. But seek and accept responsibility, I think, that's the one I always fall back on because for the same reasons you just said, it 
it does help. It ties you to everything else. It ties you to the team. It ties you to the task. It ties you to the organization. If you look for those things that need to be done. Yeah. I drive, I think I drive some people around here crazy at work, okay? <laughs> because if I see, you know, the soap dispenser is empty, I wonder if anybody's let the service desk know so that they can come and refill it. If there's a piece of paper on the floor, I pick it up. Somebody left a coffee cup somewhere, I take care of it. You know, I I can't I can't pass fault. And those are little things. Well, right? in, in the example of the coffee cup, what do you do after you pick it up? No, it, it depends. Like yeah. if it's if it's habitual, if every day you pass by the bathroom and you see two coffee cups sitting there. With well, now we got a coffee cup situation <laughs> that needs to be dealt <laughs> yeah. with. This is, these are important things that occupy my mind. But um, no. Those are just little things, but uh, obviously, obviously, this is about um, this is about not letting things go, mm-hmm. and understanding that you are an important part of the team that you're in, no matter where you are in the team, leader or elsewise. Specifically for the leader, um, in the military, I thought it meant taking on those secondary duties and planning the events and all of that. Um, and there's probably an interpretation of that that says, yeah, it's good to expand your, you know, your responsibility. It's good to take on new, uh, new experiences. But whenever I saw the people doing that, I always thought they were the brown noser type we were talking about earlier. The people that won't, weren't focused on the actual important task at hand and were trying to accrue, um, a bunch of points for their annual review. Yeah, there's people that definitely fit that description and maybe the majority, I I don't know. Um, I've taken a different interpretation of that now. And it's, it's really, it's that we all have responsibility for achieving the end state, everybody in the team. So I, I ask everyone, I meet with all of my staff when they come in, I meet with them, uh, one-on-one from time to time. And I do, I do reiterate that, that I want them to take ownership of our success and their success, um, but mostly the success of the team. Um, on that, I think that the best experience I've had professionally was working with you in Special Operations Forces at CSOR because I saw what I saw the power of a highly curated and effective team. Mm-hmm. The the power in those units, the ability to do the superhuman comes from working with people that you are very well aligned with. Yeah. Very very well aligned. People that value doing things insanely well. Well, and I respect very much that you've recreated that in the civilian world in some in some way in that that's the benefit of being in the special forces. I mean, it, it's as soon as you get in there, it's all obviously sexy because you're doing high-profile missions with small teams and expensive gear and money is not as much of a factor, but that wears off quickly. And what's important is that everybody there wants to be there because it's not materially more money than the army, but they want to be there. They want to be doing the business. They're not there um, because they're avoiding work. And you can curate your team. 
if you notice somebody isn't there for the right reasons, most of the time they'll just leave out of their own accord, but you can also ask them to leave. And it seems like you've obviously established a position for yourself and the credibility within this organization um, that you can do the same thing. Is that I don't know if these people self-selected out of your team or a combination of them being pushed out of the team or however, but you've curated your own team. So now these guys actually want to be here. And so you've kind of created like a little special forces unit within, uh, within your company here. I would agree with that, but mostly from the basis of how we, how we curate the team. And I think it, it's similar to, to the soft model where we do have a threshold of competence that you must hold, mm-hmm. but we're primarily hiring for fit. We want to trust each other. We want high trust in our team, among our teammates. And I mean, it can be, so sometimes you got to make compromises, right? Because, you know, we've got less than 4% unemployment in Victoria. Um, but for the most part, uh, we are hiring for fit. We are hiring for trust. Um, if you can meet that threshold of competence that we need for that role. I've got a threshold approaching. Um, Let's take a beer break and uh, (laughs) come back to this in a minute. Sure, sure, sure. All right, now that we are filled with strategic intent, let's uh, let's re-engage here. Um, So one of the things we were talking about a little bit is natural leaders. So what is it that you think makes a natural leader? I remember this question coming up early in my career. Are leaders born or made. And I think it's both. Um, What makes a natural leader is the ability to inspire devotion from other people. And I think that's just another way of saying charisma. People with high charisma uh, are able to, are very naturally able to lead because they, yeah, they inspire trust and devotion from other people. Um, people want to do what they want to do, um, simply because it's them. Right. Okay. Um, and you know, you, you, you see this in the military too, right? Um, I can think of one guy, he, we served with him at Seesaw. Uh, I did my infantry training with him. You know, he's a good looking guy, very calm, always got a joke, but never too, never too funny. You know, mm-hmm. he always shows up on time, ready to go, no drama. Um, people like him, uh, you know, sports guy, and uh, just generally very likable uh, and respectable. And that guy's got a serious career in the military, right? Because he just has that X factor that, um, that people want to follow. But it's also backed up with that practical experience and I guess we'll call it the theoretical framework of leadership that we spent pretty much the the whole evening here discussing um, that's going to make him effective. But that's not to say that those are the only kind of leaders that can be successful. Um, You can come in with nothing more than a desire to lead. Um, and it's got to be, like I said, authentic, uh, 
But if you come in with that desire, you can learn the tools. And that's kind of what that list of 10 principles is. If you do the opposite of those things, you're going to fail. If you do something approximating those 10 things, you should have some success, right? Uh, mileage will, will vary on your ability to execute. Um, but I think uh, that natural component just boils down to charisma. Um, and do you think charisma is something that can be learned? I can, but I, I worry about the authenticity of it because uh, if, if you come into any interaction with subordinates that is inauthentic, they will smell it. They will recognize it very quickly, yeah, and uh, and they will not trust you for sure. Um, and I've seen that happen. You know, you get um, maybe some engineers like uh, <laughs> <laughs> like uh, Greg here, <laughs> and uh, you know they try to be the big man on campus, and it just comes across as a tryhard, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding, kind of. Situations with women aside. Yeah. You know, <laughs> uh, no, it's the same. It's the same for, for your subordinates um, and, well, people you want to lead in general. Um, humans humans want authenticity, right? Mm-hmm. They want to make sure that they can trust that you have their interest at heart, that you've got the interest of the mission at heart, and that they have some sense that you know what you're doing. That's what they're looking for. It can be yeah. learned. It can be learned. Yeah, because there is something slimy about about fake charisma, isn't yeah. there? Yeah. yeah, just trying to be a little too smooth, you know. Um, it's something to watch out for anyway. Um, yeah, authenticity is key. Yeah, so so yeah, the I've thought about this before, that, that kind of natural leader. It certainly works really well at the section platoon level. However, I see that there's some... I've thought about this anyway, that there could be some ways that those people fail to grow because they mm-hmm. rely so much on their charisma that they don't take into account the other aspects of like, basically what you were talking about before is transforming strategic intent into tactical action. They are used to, at the lower levels, surrounding themselves and influencing those people around them that can make things happen. And they just go to their boss and their boss says, we need this to happen. And it's it's fairly simple, concrete um, plan. And they relay that to people and the people around them just make it happen because they believe in that person. Mm-hmm. And that is a potential failing point as that person moves up to more and more abstract positions of leadership that they maybe don't build those skills. Whereas somebody with less charisma that had to rely on, you know, these 10 principles of leadership or something approximating that just to get by because people don't naturally want to follow them, that they're actually more set up to succeed in higher levels of power. Yeah. Um, I think that goes back to what I said before about our colleague, that he's he's got legs because he not only has the charisma, he's got that theoretical framework that's going to help him out. Yeah. Um, and I did say that... Uh, a lot of people seem to have difficulty doing that translation uh, from strategic intent to tactical action. And I, I'll expand on that a little bit. Um, basically, it's it's quite simple, but it, it's not that easy to do. It's taking abstract ideas and turning them into, into specific things that you're going to do. 
Um, so what so you, would be an example of an abstract idea? Just just so people, because some people haven't heard these words like strategic objective. It's yeah. kind of a military idea. Sure, sure. Least, so I picture it as a waterfall. Okay. Okay, and I'll give a... Uh, the military's got such great examples for this. I'll give a very clear example, and, and then I'll give a business example after. Okay. Uh, so, okay, at the national strategic level, Canada wants to support peace and prosperity across the globe. Okay, so how are we going to do that? Well, one thing that we can do is we can uh, support... Uh, Peace specifically in the country of Afghanistan. Okay, well, how are we going to do that? Because we can't do the whole thing by ourselves. Well, we'll work as part of a coalition to uh, secure a specific section or part of that country, mm -hmm. um, you know, Kandahar province, and then we the, that'll support the overall country, which supports the overall peace and security across the globe. Okay, we've got Kandahar province. How are we going to do that? Well, we're going to send a task force made up of, you know, certain number of battalions or whatever, mm -hmm. uh, and then they're going to conduct certain activities to, right. to do that. Okay, so what activities? Well, that's where you start to translate that into something that people are going to actually do. So that commander of the battalion knows that they're going to take this section of the map and they're going to uh, conduct, you know, civil military liaison. They're going to uh, provide security for uh, outreach and construction. They're going to do presence patrols. They're going to they're going to do whatever is going to help provide that security so that peace can thrive. Okay. So what does that mean for the company commander or for the platoon commander underneath yeah. them? And well, so they're going to they, go and... They've basically done their job. If they weren't doing their job at that high level of leadership, they would just go down to the company commanders and say, uh, bring peace to your region. Yeah. Rather than, what does that mean? You know, they're basically just... And that's something that you're, you know, you're consistently told in the military. You can't just take your commander's plan and repeat it to your subordinates. Right. You have to break it down. You have to break it down. And so when it gets to the tactical level, it might end up being... We're going to walk this route, and if we encounter the enemy, we will defeat them, but hopefully that doesn't happen and they stay in their holes and they don't come out and fight, uh, and people can go about their daily lives, right? Um, but then let's say that does happen, and a soldier is standing there, and they've they're in a firefight, and there's a strong possibility that if they, say, return fire, they're going to harm some civilians, right? So that soldier has to make a decision. They've got to go left or go right. They've got to either hunker down and call for support and hope that the situation changes or other people have a different perspective and can turn the tide of the battle, or they're going to risk harming those civilians. They have a choice. But what's the overall intent of that mission? Peace right? and security. Peace and security. Mm -hmm. You know, so they've got to make a tough choice, you know, depending on the situation, depending on how much risk there is to them, 
um, you know, following the rules of engagement, they might choose to to take cover and call in for support because they know that if they kill that family over there, that they will actually have uh, disrupted the overall intent of the mission. Mm-hmm. So it feeds right back up. So everybody's breaking down their piece of the pie and everybody understands how their piece makes up the whole. Yeah. In the military context. Uh, in the civilian context, what businesses try to achieve is, you know, it's fairly it's fairly similar across all industries. Like you might have a different product or a different service, but all you're really trying to do is create more value out of the resources that you bring in, right? Yeah. Whether that's uh, plastic and fabric for kite surfing equipment or um, uh, time and and people resources providing a service. It doesn't matter. Um, so one initiative, one strategic objective might be you know, earning an engaged workforce. That's important uh, in any in any industry. You know, um, you want to have you can measure that, right? You can break that down into measurable pieces and take specific action at different levels to enable that. So, so wh- the the example of the strategic intent in this case is an engaged workforce. Yeah. Okay. Earn an engaged workforce. That's, that's one that I've used in the past. Um, and that's just to level set across the company nationally that this is important for us right now, that we need to do this. And even the phrasing of it speaks to the employees to say that we understand we're going to be earning your engagement, mm-hmm. right? Um, so then you might yeah, look... It's not, it's not demand an engaged workforce. Right. Force the lazy employees to become more engaged. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, know? yeah. We have to earn it. It's it's action that management has to take, that the company has to take to to earn that engagement. Uh, and so you might break that down into, into some, you know, very basic things like let's come up with a compensation strategy that suits our industry and our geography and the level of expertise that we we require in the company, um, and and then you measure against that. What? How do we know that we've achieved that? You know, uh, breaking the, down the tasks that will go into it, uh, and you can do that across any number of activities that are going to support that main objective. Right? Um, it might be. Uh, communication, improved communication with uh, with with the staff. Um, you're going to do company wide communication, and then you're also going to have communication right down through the division, the department, the unit, the business practice, whatever. Uh, and you're going to have specific tasks at each level that serve that overall objective of uh, improving communication, which serves. The strategic objective of building or earning, earning an engaged workforce. Um, you were talking about earning an engaged workforce, and you were talking about some of the actual objectives that the company would break down, and as a manager, how you would, you know, bring that to bear through 
you know, actual action, actions that you could take, um, such as some communication strategy. So when, let's say, you know, my boss says we've got to improve communication with, with our staff. I don't necessarily get him to tell me what that is or need them to tell me what it is that I'm going to do. I have to understand their intent and then decide what I'm going to do to support that. Mm-hmm. And so how, when you, <clears throat> I'm just trying to think about in the context of somebody who hasn't been exposed to these ideas before. If you've never, if you've never thought like this, if you've been, say you're an, you've been an employee most of your life and you've just kind of been told what to do and you're generally serving the company and serving yourself and trying to further your career. But then all of a sudden you're given some subordinates and you have these mission statements that, you know, earn an engaged workforce. How would you go about thinking about those problems and coming up with that? Like you personally, um, what's the first step you take? Yeah. So I always look one level up. Okay. Okay. And say, okay, I'm being told to improve communication with my team. So what? Why? And well, in this case, it's to earn an engaged workforce. So that helps contextualize what it is I'm supposed to be doing. Right. Mm-hmm. So I should not be communicating in a way that's going to disengage yeah. the workforce. Right. And when you, when you think like this, are you? Do you have a notepad? How do you? How do you? How does this actually look like in your office when you're when you're doing this? Yeah. Um, actually, I do it out uh, in a spreadsheet. Okay. And it it ends up kind of looking like a, a waterfall. Okay. Yeah. And it depends on how many levels that I'm looking at and who I'm working with to mm-hmm. do this. This is something that I actually do in the company I work for now, which is to help people work through the strategy. So, you know, as an executive team, we develop the strategy, right? Mm-hmm. And we do all the common MBA stuff like, uh, you know, do the SWOT and do the competitor analysis and do the, the market analysis and look and get all the information to help uh, inform us how we're going to, in the broad strokes, proceed in the next three to five years, okay? Yeah. Then once we've established those themes... It's, that's probably a good way to put it. It's the difference between themes and, and specific, uh, specific plot points, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you've, you've got to make sure the themes are there. And I would put strategy, I would uh, refer to as themes. And then once you've established the themes that you're going to be working toward, um, which are informed by all of that good analysis, uh, you've got to start to draw out from experts and and leaders in your organization those things, those plot points that are going to support the overall themes, uh, the overall strategy that you're trying to achieve. Um, and it ends up uh, it ends up working, looking like a, a bit of a waterfall. There's a few different ways to capture this. Uh, the one that I use, it's uh, called the Rockefeller one page strategic plan. Okay. And it's well, maybe I'll put a, I'll put a link to it in the, 
yeah, in sure. the notes. Yeah, um, it's uh, it's a good way to concisely capture uh, all of your activities and to draw the line between the very lowest level activity all the way up to the most strategic intent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then I guess we've had this experience in the military. I know at least. What if there is no strategic intent? What do you do as a leader when you mine for that and it seems like there's nothing there? How would you approach that situation when you have to, well, I guess I'm kind of situating the estimate here, when you have to lead up Mm -hmm. and not just lead down? Mm -hmm. Uh, Been there as well. Um, And basically what that comes down to is your your best effort as a leader to understand what's important um, for your organization, for the broader organization that you're a part of. Um, and, uh, if, if you're, you know, in the middle of the organization and you do not perceive a cohesive strategy, if the values of your company are not clear, if you do not have a clear mission, uh, then I, I would say, you know, don't put too much time into it, uh, but try to figure out what you think it might be or what a winning strategy might look like, and then work toward that. Uh, And what does that look like? Does that look like from your team down, or do you start seeding that message upwards? um, Obviously, situationally. Yeah, that's a, I mean, that's a whole other conversation leading up. uh, (laughs) Very, uh, very tricky, very tricky business that, um, uh, but yeah, it's kind of hard to set a strategy from the middle of the company. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, you don't have all access to all the information, I would say, that you need to do that. Um, even just internally, uh, the strengths and weaknesses of the company aren't necessarily apparent. All of the market opportunities and threats you just might not be in tune with Yeah, uh, because of, of where you are and what you're focused on. Well, especially if the people that should be aware of them aren't even. Yeah, Uh that that is a bad situation to be in for sure. <laughs> yeah, okay, fair enough. Um, yeah, ideally you climb the ladder and you know start to fix that problem. Um, but in the absence of that, you just you take your best effort at figuring out what that might be, for sure, and and orient your activity towards those things. Okay, so. We've had, as you mentioned, a pretty abstract discussion about a lot of these leadership principles. Um, Before we finish up, do you have any, do you have like a more concrete example you could give the listeners of how you or somebody around you had set these principles into motion um, to a positive end? Yeah, Um, I'll talk about a recent example. Um, I can't get into too many specifics about it, but um, it's it's non-military. so we had a contract for a federal client, um, very high risk, no fail mission, um, short timeline. And it's, it's core business for us. It's a call center. So I went from running special ops missions with a gun and a bag of money to running call centers. <laughs> Much more. A natural progression. Yeah, a natural progression <laughs> a for natural someone progression. like you. Yeah, natural progression. Um, we do all kinds of business, but in this case, it was a call center. And like I said, it was no fail. So uh, uh, they put me on it. 
Um, just kidding. <laughs> uh, no, but uh, I'd worked on the proposal and the timeline was very short. So I was in a good position for the implementation and running the operation. Um, and we had a massive, massive uh, goal just with the implementation. We had to get the facility. We had to hire a bunch of people. We had to get all the IT infrastructure into place. We had to create all the programs. We had a new business intelligence tool that we had to use and make sure that all of that was uh, federally cleared from a security perspective, which is not uh, an easy feat. Um, but we were successful with that. That was done. Um, Can you give uh, an indication of like the scope of this, like how many, how many employees you had to call, yeah, yeah. call in? Um, so we, yeah, we had to uh, support um, pretty uh, highly fluctuating call arrival patterns with major peaks. Um, so that translated to about 350 agents. Um, we needed about a 20,000 square foot facility that needed to be um, leased and, and built out. Uh, it was not in a city that we regularly regularly do business. Um, and yeah, we had a few short months to pull this all together. Um, but like I said, that was successful. The operation itself, uh, where we onboarded the agents, did the training, and took the calls, uh, was very challenging just because of the nature of the work. And uh, it was a seven-day-a-week operation, 17 hours a day. So for this one, I brought in somebody from my team, uh, an emerging leader, let's say, somebody who hadn't in the organization been given a lot of shots yet, but who had a good, who had good experience, who clearly had potential. Um, and I want to say drank the Kool-Aid from how I've been <laughs> running my team, um, very much aligned. And I wanted her to be the face of the operation. I wanted her to be the face of leadership for the, for this operation. And she very much was. And watching her take 350 agents with just 10 supervisors and making them a team, people who had come together uh, over the course of a few weeks and had not worked together before uh, and so seamlessly deliver, um, getting service levels beyond uh, what, what our clients are normally used to uh, in this industry, um, what... I mean, our clients are used to getting it from us, but uh, <laughs> they're not normally, uh, clients aren't normally getting that level of service. Um, uh, it, it, was, it was one of the most rewarding uh, things for me uh, to see because, you know, I pulled off complex operations before uh, when I was the face of it and when I was in it for 17 hours a day, seven days a week. And mm -hmm. you know, at some point, some people don't move past that because that's, that's where the fun is. That's where the, like, you know, that's where the rubber hits the road. But I want to take more responsibility. I want to, I want to move up in my career and I want to, um, I want to help more people be mm. successful. So you need to start trusting other people to execute exactly. on your behalf. Exactly. So being able to do the plans and come up with the strategy 
and communicate that and have the vision and do all that high-level stuff that so often doesn't get done well. And I'm not claiming to have done it well, but it, it was effective, at least in this case. And to uh, work with her and and develop her and see her be able to execute so effectively, like honestly better than what I could have done. That that uh, that meant the world to me, and it solidified it solidified my belief uh, in my own leadership ability. In the end, like I feel fairly fairly competent. Not an expert by any means, mm-hmm. but somewhat competent. Yeah, uh, watching her be so effective. Very cool. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Thank you for that. Um, is there anything else? Any other example or anything? Any closing remarks that you want to make before we uh, before we wrap it up? Yeah, um, like I said, you can you can read all the books. You know, um, you can. You can uh, study all the frameworks and and methodologies around leadership. And, I mean, you can even do it for 15 years and still feel like an amateur. Um, At the end of the day, I think it's important to stay humble and realize that though the team isn't going anywhere without your leadership, it's still not about you as a leader. And you have to try to, you have to try to create the conditions where the team can carry on without you, at least in the short term, um, and that you not orient the team around yourself. You orient the team around the team. Okay. Right. And uh, so somebody that's you know, somebody that's just coming into that leadership leadership position we've talked about before. Would like you know all these things are great as far as the intent and clarifying, and that's what you get from the books. But what's been a reoccurring theme to me is accepting is what you talked about is accepting responsibility. That seems to me something that somebody could do regardless of what position, whether they're a fry cook at McDonald's or whether executive is look for those places where responsibility has been abdicated and see if they can fill that gap. Yeah, you don't have to be the boss to be the leader. Mm-hmm. Everyone in the team can lead. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks so much, Justin. Yeah. Thank it's you. Been great. Yeah, it's been good. All right. I hope you got as much out of that discussion with Justin Legere as I did. As always, I'd love to hear what you guys think. Please get in touch with me on Twitter at Contra underscore podcast. And if you've been enjoying the show, please rate and subscribe. Thanks so much for listening.